Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool, the podcast for the climate economy, where we dive deep into the climate crisis and come up with solutions. I'm your host, Molly Wood. This week, something a little different. As you know, a couple weeks ago, I talked with Matt Rogers, the Apple pioneer co-founder of Nest, and now alongside Harry Tannenbaum, who was also at Nest and led hardware development at Google, he has co-founded Mill, a climate startup that makes a kitchen compost appliance. Well, it just so happens that I got to spend some extra time with the Mill team, finding out how a bunch of them ended up working in climate at this company specifically, and how they think about making impact in the climate solution space. So think of this episode as sort of an extended version of the job board. And I hope you feel inspired that almost no matter what you're doing, there's probably a climate solutions company that could use your skills. And there's definitely a way to inject more climate thinking into the job you're already doing. I have three guests today, each with a different path to wanting to work in climate, starting here. My name is Lou Pia. I work on policy, mainly uh, federal policy, um, but a little bit of everything. And I've been at Mill for about two and a half years now. Lou Senny, or Lou, had a long and very impressive career working on environmental issues in government, which he'll tell us about in a bit here, before moving into private industry to have a different type of impact that might be a little faster and more efficient. I guess about three years ago, I ended up meeting Matt and Harry, our co-founders, through a former coworker of mine from the Obama administration, uh, who I lived down in Southern California. He's in Southern California. He he also happened to be, was an early, early investor in Bill. And the way he, he said it to me is that, you know, Matt and Harry, had really been at this early stage company working on sort of the issue of waste, waste and climate. And, you know, they really want to bring on a policy person. And, you know, what my buddy had said to me was like, you know, this is really a unique situation because typically startups don't bring on policy people like this early on. And, you know, kind of he put us in contact and one thing led to the next. And, you know, I was, I was pretty inspired by obviously the mission and the, the opportunity, the ability, the potential to be a part of building something. But then also I just felt like Matt and Harry were like good guys, right? Like I was like, you know, I'm at the point in my career where I, I can't be around folks that I just can't work with and truly collaborate with. I'm a real team oriented person. And I just kind of got those vibes pretty early on. So, um, you know, really, I guess the rest, the rest was history. So you were with the, I like how you humbly skipped past your long, amazing experience in the Obama administration. So talk about how you kind of ended up going private. Like, give us a little bit of the White House experience. We, I will not, by the way, I will not extrapolate from what you said that everybody in government is really hard to work with, although that's definitely the vibe I get. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, government was was fun and amazing. I ended up in the Obama administration because I ended up leaving a law firm where I was practicing environmental law. Mm. 
back in 2011, and I was really bullish on then President Obama, and he was having a pretty tough time. And so I left my firm, and I jumped on his campaign pretty early during that cycle and uh, had an amazing sort of like life-changing experience working in communities, organizing, driving towards something that was more mission-oriented than I felt my my environmental law practice was at the time. Mm. And uh, that, that took me to D.C., where... I was really fortunate to be able to like, you know, leverage my environmental legal experience and jump into the EPA. I had a couple of roles. I finished up as deputy chief of staff to former administrator Gina McCarthy and spent time in the White House. And and, and really, honestly, I, I worked on a bunch of issues that were thorny and hard and not that sexy, kind of like food waste. Um I, I, you know, I was kind of dealing with environmental justice issues and EPA's Office of Civil Rights that had a, a long track record of a lot of problems, a lot of challenges and not really not being that effective. I, I spent almost a year on the ground in Flint responding to the water crisis. I, I did work on some food waste issues while I was there. Um, and, you know, I think that like when I think about my transition, my transition to Mill, and like why it was really interesting to me. I mean, obviously I met uh, this friend of mine uh, while we were in administration and he kind of connected us, but like there were just so many issues at EPA. When I was at EPA, climate was the big focus, but there were all these other issues that were really important as well that I kind of thought were overlooked. And, I, and interestingly, I mean, I think food waste was, was one of the issues I worked on that like I thought had the potential to drive a lot of impact for climate and for communities. Um, but it wasn't really at the top of the priority list. So l- let me go all the way back to what made you want to practice environmental law in the first place. What got you interested in this sector? You know, so, you know, I'm from, um, born in Detroit, grew up in the Detroit area. Mom's retired Detroit public school teacher, grew up in a household that cared about issues, cared about issues relating to my community cared about politics um, and activism. And like, those were like the dinner, the dinner table conversations. I distinctly even remember going to my mom's school to like help like load her classroom and, you know, her, her, the elementary school at the time that she worked at on the East side of Detroit was like surrounded by abandoned buildings, abandoned factories, right? Like sort of the remnants of like a dying industry, mm-hmm. uh, you know, early nineties Detroit. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, what's the impact of this? Right. Like, this is crazy. Like the time I was going to school in Ann Arbor, we'd moved out of the city and it, it just was like, you know, what is the impact of, on this? I wasn't thinking about anything having to do with the environment. So fast forward, um, I still care about these issues through college and uh, law school, trying to figure out what I want to focus on once I graduate. My last semester of law school, I took environmental law. And it was like that class that made me realize that like there was this whole body of law that I completely took for granted. I had no association with like being an environmentalist. Like these weren't like issues. These weren't my, I didn't believe these to be my issues, right? Yeah. But I took, envir- I took this class and I realized, wow, there's this whole body of law that impacts the built environment. It impacts health and safety. It impacts sort of the ability to learn. And I kind of, it, it sort of made it clear in what I realize now, sort of the intersectional nature of environmentalism. It's such an envi- intersectional issue. And so 
I, I kind of left that class thinking, wow, this is really interesting and this is really cool. And actually this body of law can impact issues that I care about in a way that I had no clue. Right. And so I kind of went back to school and got my LLM in environmental law and policy and was fortunate to land at a law firm where I was practicing environmental law and kind of, you know, the rest was kind of history in terms of like working on these issues and in this space. Say more about how it's intersectional. I think there is increasingly, I mean, I would argue maybe only over the last half decade plus, really, Mm -hmm. that there's sort of a a really broad awareness of equity and justice as it relates to environmentalism. And the fact that, like you said, this is about community. This is about where factories get cited, where freeways end up consistently, where pollution does and does not get cleaned up. I mean, the built environment impacts everything, right? It impacts jobs, it, in terms, it impacts health, it impacts what you think or what you believe to be possible. I think more often, especially in sort of, you know, my lived experiences in some of the communities I came from, the environment is like the, is not the issue that in, smacks you most directly in the face on a regular basis. Right. right? It's the jobs. It's sort of like, I have asthma. It's... um you know, I have this sort of perpetual stench in the neighborhood that I live in, or I'm like constantly being sort of, you know, bothered by large diesel trash trucks that are running through my neighborhood. There's kind of this tension between, you know, people think about, they treat kind of climate justice and environmental justice differently. Like climate is its own thing. And, and, and I think in the, in, in, in the case of some folks, in some communities, like the pursuit of like reducing, these are all like really important things, by the way, right? Like Mm -hmm. reducing emissions from landfills and from mobile sources, like these are really, really important. But sometimes it feels like it's at the expense of sort of the legacy pollutants and contaminants that are like plaguing the community and maybe even more impactful on the day-to-day existence of most folks. And I think there's just like this interesting tension, like these two issues are like completely related but they're kind of treated separately, right? And I even saw it in my time in government. You had air people, right? And you had non-air people. And they were kind of separately kind of doing their things. But, you know, what's exciting about, I think, the food waste issue is just there's like such a direct connection between, okay, you know, food and the impact that can have on the climate. But like, we also understand where this material is currently going. And, you know, there are the real impacts to communities, water quality to, you know, just sort of the overall quality of life that uh, that people are living through. And so uh, I was really excited about kind of the opportunity to work on that type of problem. Okay. So talk to me about the the public to private kind of pathway and what you think policy can do and can't do that maybe, you know, private enterprise can do better. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and honestly, it's one of the most challenging. I mean, I think kind of the, the, it's a challenging transition, especially coming to an early age, early stage startup, right? The challenge is that like they work on very different time frames. They have very different constructs. You know, government has to be slow. It needs to be slow because these are public resources, right? We need to be really mindful about how we use them generally. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to kind of reconcile, again, just sort of the pace that these two separate entities are working at. I think that is the challenge. So I've grown to kind of appreciate the ability to be really nimble and to deploy technology quickly and resources quickly and sort of just the pace of change and impact or deployment, I think is just so different than what you deal with in government. But, you know, I think that government has a very different objective and it's not 
only the private interest, right? I think it's also sort of what are the community interests or a ton of stakeholders that you have to consider in making decisions. And, you know, again, like, you know, you can think about just some of the tensions. I mean, of, you know, every action has a reaction and oftentimes they're unintentional, you know, unintentional impacts. And like government's job is to like minimize those unintentional impacts and it takes time. And I think that's something that you don't necessarily have to think about if you're a private company and um, and that's not what you're charged to do. And so I think there's a really important role for both entities. And, you know, I think um, there's a lot to learn. Both entities can learn learn something from, from the other as well. Yeah. I think there are plenty of people who would say that they wish the tech industry writ large, not mill specifically, would give a little more thought to unintended consequences. Yeah, for sure. What is the policy part of the job? Well, and because like you said, it is unusual for companies, even companies who have a much more obvious policy kind of impact. Yeah. It is still unusual for startups to bring on policy people earlier. Like what's your job? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one part of my job is still education and awareness, right? I think generally like there's, there's a privileged segment of the society that understands the impact loss and waste on the climate. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's still enough of a kind of an association or an understanding about like the impact of food loss and waste on climate. And so I think there's still work to be done. I think everybody has like a direct relationship with food and with waste. And that creates a real opportunity. And it also is sort of the reason why I think this is still a really, really hard issue, but it's kind of like low hanging fruit. Like, I think this is something that like, with the right type of focus and investment, we could like really move the needle on. Mm-hmm. I think to get a little more granular, I think that, you know, one of the things that we know is that waste is managed at the state and local level. We know that it costs money <laughs> to be able to kind of manage those materials um, and to do really innovative things with those materials. I think this is about at the federal level, really trying to help to kind of shake loose money that will go to state and local jurisdictions to be able to more effectively manage organic materials and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and obviously helping to divert those materials from landfills. I think, you know, EPA and any Biden administration is doing a good job of thinking about innovative approaches to kind of address some of those issues. So I think that's a big, big part of this that kind of relates to relates to mail. But I think some sub points are just, you know, we view ourselves as 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 infrastructure. Yeah. We view ourselves as sort of distributed infrastructure that's really novel and innovative and different, but like nonetheless infrastructure. And so, you know, from a policy perspective, you know, we're trying to engage and think about ways to kind of make that more clear and to increase that sort of association because that'll help us deploy these devices and also hopefully, you know, deploy these devices in dense ways, but also in ways that hopefully help to promote a bit more equity as well. All right. I know you're not all former deputy chiefs of staff for the EPA during the Obama administration. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk to two of Mill's newer employees who are coming at this tech solution from the tech side of things. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool, where we're doing an extended job board episode, talking with people who shifted their careers into climate, or in the case of Lupier, shifted from government solutions to private industry. Next up, two young tech employees who found mission and purpose in their current job. I'm Hannah Parento. I'm a firmware engineer at Mill. I've been with Mill about four months, so I'm pretty new. I'm still still learning everything, but I, I feel like I've been able to come in and like immediately jump in and get stuff done, which has been really exciting. I think I've been interested in in climate pretty much my whole life. I don't remember a time that it wasn't something I cared about. You know, I was trying to start recycling programs at my middle school and like doing volunteer work in conservation. But when I went to college and discovered, you know, firmware, it's cool. So uh, as, as the name suggests a little bit, firmware is kind of right in between software and hardware. So what that means is it's it's code that's very specifically applicable to the hardware that it's running on. I get to write code that you know makes things happen in the real world. So I, I went into that and struggled for for a while to find a position that kind of matched that technical engineering interest with something that actually felt impactful in the climate space. So I spent a while working in electric vehicle technology which felt sort of adjacent, but I think there's there's like a huge issue around transportation and whether more vehicles, even if they're cleaner, is actually the right solution. I'm just personally a very big proponent of public transportation. And I think that expanding public transportation infrastructure is gonna be just a much more effective way to get cars off the road and get emissions efficiency better in transporting people all over the place. I just personally found kind of this tension of this isn't the solution that I actually want to be in place for. And most recently, I worked in a large consumer electronics company um, working on on devices that felt very socially impactful. You know, it's useful to have phones and computers. They're great communication devices, but we're trying to get people to buy a new phone every year. And even if their materials are recycled, it feels like such a big impact of just producing new stuff all the time. So yeah, when I when I found out about Mill, it felt like really an awesome balance of a technology that's truly impactful that I think could really make a difference and that needs my technical skill set. So I think there's something about the mission and something about the thoughtfulness going into the whole life cycle of the Mill device. So on the mission side, uh, I was sort of vaguely aware of like food waste. It's a problem. Methane emissions. But it wasn't until I interviewed with Mill that I kind of got a little more of the the sense of scale of that problem and that like household food waste is the biggest contributor to food waste in landfills. I got a good understanding of sort of the problem and it's such a specific problem to try to solve that that's really compelling of like, there's a very, very clear goal. And then on the device side, it is still 
a thing that we're making. But I think what's particularly interesting about Mill's approach from an engineering perspective is we're not trying to sell a device and then sell somebody a newer version of that same device a year later. What we're selling is a service that helps address food waste in a household and that functions you know, as well as we can make it function for that lifetime. And we're not trying to sell a new sexier version every year that people need to upgrade to. I grew up in California. We have wildfire season. We have you know, concerns about flooding in, in some places and just seeing directly the like real physical impacts of climate change is certainly part of the, the spark. And I think knowing that there are things, easy adjustments to make, like recycling, that society wasn't necessarily adopting, felt like, okay, here's this really specific thing. We know that it works. You know, I could personally make a change to try to get that adopted. So it's always felt like a a common thread of like, whatever I can do, even if it's small, is worth doing. And finally, another young tech worker who went looking for climate jobs pretty much straight out of college. He had a hard time finding one until climate found him. My name is Max Ogrisco. I am a software engineer at Mill. So out of college, I wanted to do something climate related, but I was having some trouble finding climate roles, I think as a first job. I was looking for more like computer vision related roles because that's what I studied. That's sort of how robots see, like how autonomous cars kind of navigate the world. So I think there weren't a ton with uh, that specific, you know, computer vision role in general. Just as a senior, you submit like 150 applications and then you get like two interviews and you're just like, oh, I'm so unqualified, like nobody wants me. You also, it's, it's hard because you don't want to be greenwashing and you don't want to work for a place that is greenwashing. And I think that that's one of the hardest things when you're like looking for a role like this is like everyone thinks, I mean, obviously you could work for Tesla or, or something, but a lot of places it's, it's way more iffy on whether they actually um, are doing anything good. So I thought, why don't I just go to Utah, be a... A software engineer there. I can do some climbing and mountain biking and skiing and stuff. And worked at a company called Qualtrics for around two years. I lived in two places in Utah. One was in Pleasant Grove, Utah, which is like right by BYU and Provo. But I would do weekend trips down to Moab, which is sort of like an outdoors town uh, in southern Utah. And I remember on one of the trips, I got a call from one of my roommates that there was a forest fire that was right by our house. And I remember hearing about like evacuations being needed and and stuff like that, uh, sort of while I was in my tent. And that just how eerie of an experience that was to just know that all of this, all of my things in my home were at risk because of this thing that I couldn't control. It didn't end up like reaching my home or anything, everything was fine. The second year I went on a camping, another camping trip. And as we were driving back, uh, for some reason, we just decided to turn on the radio, which we never did. And uh, the radio was just talking, it was sort of this frantic, like, 
this crazy fire is happening in Lambs Canyon. And I didn't know what Lambs Canyon was, but it was sort of like local news. And I remember getting out of my friend's truck and just like turning to the left. And there was just this like enormous plume of smoke just like right over the hill from our house. And I was like, oh, that's probably what Lambs Canyon is. It's like a a couple miles from, from my house. And then sort of like notice how everyone in the neighborhood was acting, which we didn't really notice before. And there's just kind of this weird frantic sense of like, like, shoot, like, is this, how big of a deal is this? Like, it seemed pretty big on the radio. So we were like, should we, like, we started looking at Twitter. Uh, We're like, what are updates on this? We're like, okay, we probably should start like packing up our things. I mean, we're like the first house that this fire would hit. And so we started doing that. And then maybe like 20 or 30 minutes later, we just get like a really frantic knock on our door and it's like the police and they're like you have 20 minutes to get out of your house like pack up your things we're evacuating this neighborhood like this is not a joke which was crazy and this fire i think the state of utah to you know get some firefighters from out of state to come it was kind of this whole thing they had to close off part of the highway it was a whole thing and I, i think it took like a week before we could actually come back to our house so That happened. And also, I think that same summer, my hometown of Seattle got up to, I think it was like 106 degrees or or something like that, which obviously I grew up there. That's completely unheard of. Uh, Normally, it would be like 85, like 90 would be crazy in Seattle. So like 106 is just absurd. And I don't know, I think seeing Seattle get up to 106, and then this fire where I was like, my home is a danger. And this is like a consistent thing. You know, the first time it's weird, but then when it's a consistent thing, you're like, okay, this is like this thing that I wanted to work on. This is happening now. And it's like directly affecting me. And I'd always been like, oh, I should build up my, you know, resume so I can get like a better position, have more impact and and stuff. And I just realized I have to do this now. And so I started to look into a bunch of climate related companies and my mom is she's a soil scientist at University of Washington and this dude Harry Tannenbaum hit her up for some advice on how to sort of like break into the scene he's like a co-founder of Mill and so that's sort of how I knew about the company and so sort of having my my mother be in this industry sort of being like these people are doing something cool I like believe in this and my peers do as well was definitely like a big thing for me to to take the jump. Whatever it takes, am I right? And that's it for this episode of Everybody in the Pool about people who are doing the work because the problem, no matter what anybody tries to tell you, is real. And you can join them in the pool at work, at home, at play, anywhere you are. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find my newsletter at mollywood.co and email your thoughts, reactions, and ideas to in at everybodyinthepool.com. And if you'd like to support the show directly and get an ad-free version, you can subscribe at the link in the show description in your podcast app of choice. And thank you so much to those of you who already have. I appreciate you. Together, we can get this done. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.